Hello, and welcome to another episode of Fully Scored. This episode marks a significant landmark as our 50th podcast episode. And to celebrate this momentous milestone and kick off our fifth season, we're delighted that Commissioner Edward Hill has agreed to join us. As Chief of the Staff, Edward is a key component in the leadership and development of the Salvation Army internationally. He speaks to us about his role, his visions for the church, but also his musical upbringing and passion for Salvation Army music making. Our analysis today marks the beginning of an epic trilogy, taking us back to the early days of the Salvation Army in the East End of London. Bandmaster Jonathan Evans joins us once again, this time to navigate us through the influences, story and music contained in Ray Steadman Allen's Victorian Snapshots on Ratcliffe Highway. Our stranded soul on Arid Island today is staff bandsman and member of the Coldstream Guards, Gareth Craig. But first, we hear from the Chief of the Staff, Commissioner Edward Hill. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's a real privilege to have you join us on Fully Schooled, and I hope you're keeping well for this early morning recording. Thank you, Matthew. It's great to be with you. And yes, I am keeping well. It's a beautiful day here in London. A little, little cool, a little crisp, but uh, I'm very comfortable inside IHQ. So over this next uh, period of time, we're going to get to know you a little bit better, a little bit more about your music making, your views on Salvation Army music and your faith. But first of all, I want to go back a little bit and uh, ask you, when did your passion for music first become evident? Well, of course, I dabbled in music, uh, you know, as a youngster growing up in the Salvation Army. And, you know, I'll talk a little bit maybe more about that later. But I think that I I got kind of fired up about my own participation, particularly in the band, in in about the early to mid-1970s when I was a young teenager. And uh, my parents got moved to become the Corps officers at the Portland Tabernacle Corps. And that was a very dynamic corps. I had a a good band. It had... uh, great songs for Brigade, uh, lots and lots of young people, lots of good influences uh, externally as well in school and so forth. So I think for me, when I was about 13, 14, 15, that's when I started to take off a little bit in my own interest in music making, particularly in the Army. And who were some people that inspired you on that journey in your formative years? Yeah, well, certainly my, my parents, particularly my mother, she's a very skilled musician, uh, still playing today at 93. In fact, she's got a recital tomorrow that she's playing along with an organist. So she's still very active in her music making. So she was really a great model for me. My dad uh, played cornet, but he was a cornet player who he, he would always say can't play offbeats. Well, that's problematic for a cornet player playing second cornet. But what he lacked maybe in skill and... Uh, capacity he made it for enthusiasm and faithfulness and so both my parents but particularly my mother were good influences uh the bandmaster at portland tap that day michael verbout was uh encouragement he would often bring in guests you know for weekends at the band like you know, norman bearcroft would come in and and uh, robert redhead and and others and so that was a big deal for us in portland to have that caliber of musician come in uh, you know, and then a little later on, people like uh, Eric Loveless, uh, Terry Camsey, Ivor Basenko, uh, Wolf Mountain, some of those guys uh, were very instrumental. And then, of course, uh, in school, I was blessed to have a couple of outstanding music teachers in school that, uh, you know, really kind of turned me on to, to music and encouraged me. So, you know, there's been lots of people, and, you know, it takes a lot of people usually to get us through 
uh, you know, our formative years. And that was my, my, my experience. Brilliant. Thank you for sharing those memories. Now on a slightly different path, can you tell us a little bit about when you knew you had a calling for officership, leadership, ministry in the Salvation Army? Yeah, you know, I actually went into training college uh, late. I was commissioned as an officer at 33. Uh, so, uh, you know, for, for my generation, that was probably later than normal. Um, I really didn't think much about officership at all in my 20s. Uh, in fact, the only really serious conversation I remember having about becoming an officer is with my D.C., John Gowans at the time, and he talked to me about it at one point. But I think there was just a recognition uh, over time that I wanted to maximize my investment of my life in, in, in the work of the Lord, and, and the Army was the best place to do that. And so uh, it was kind of a gradual experience for me that led to my, my decision to pursue Salvation Army officership along with my wife. Of course, I had to talk to her about it, and it was a bit of a journey for, for both of us, but uh, we've never really looked back. We've enjoyed the whole, the whole journey. So before you went into officership, what did you find yourself doing in life? Yeah, well, I worked for five years uh, during college and post-college for a, for a food company called Wellington Food Company. And I did lots of things for them. We made the food. We, we, I drove the forklift. I made deliveries and so forth. So I did that for a number of years. And then I, uh, I worked for about six years as an employee of the Salvation Army. And uh, mostly uh, at the Red Shield Youth and, and, and uh, Community Center in Los Angeles as the executive director. And that was very helpful to me to kind of prepare the way for my Salvation Army service. My wife worked mostly in banking and in credit unions until she uh, became an officer. Amazing. And I'd love to know a little bit about your journey of officership, where you've been and some of the places that you've been appointed since your commissioning. Well, we were commissioned as members of the Heralds of Jesus Session in 1993. I just want to throw that in there. Uh, We went to Hawaii. Uh, Actually, our first appointment was the Leeward Corps in Hawaii, Honolulu. A beautiful location overseeing Pearl Harbor. We were there for a couple of years. Then we became the divisional youth leaders in that division which was the Hawaiian Islands, uh, Marshall Islands, Federated States of Micronesia, Guam, and Saipan. So we had five years in Hawaii, and then we went to the training college. I had three different appointments uh, at the college. And then uh, we got moved kind of mid-year to the Pasadena Tabernacle Corps. Shelly and I were the Corps officers there, and uh, that was a very formative, exciting period of our Salvation Army officership because the Corps was, was great. And the people were terrific. We just loved being a part of that core. Very strong music sections, as you know. And then in 2008, we went back to Hawaii for four more years as the divisional leaders. And then um, on to uh, THQ, where I was the program secretary for four years. And then we started to head overseas. I went to Singapore, Malaysia, Myanmar, and Thailand as the chief for a couple of years. And then to Canada in Bermuda Territory. Uh, and lived in Toronto for uh, two and a half years, serving as a chief and then came to IHQ, where I was the uh, International Secretary for the Americas and Caribbean Zone. And then since uh, July, I've been the Chief of the Staff. So we've had an exciting journey and uh, enjoyed most of uh, every day that we've uh, served along the way. And I guess all of those places that you mentioned you've been, the cultures are very, very different. Is it difficult to adapt to those different cultures, or is it easier because the Salvation Army is that unifying factor between all the different cultures you've been part of? 
Yeah, look, I think that uh, we, we have found it fairly easy to, to, to slide in and out of those places. Uh, you know, fortunately for us, all those places uh, that we've lived in anyway have allowed us to speak English uh, freely, and so that's been good. We've been part of Good Core uh, in just about every single location. We've enjoyed that very, very much. I, I think I've been in the band in every single core I've worshipped in, and, and that's been a nice uh, opportunity for me. So, yeah, I think that uh, the, the fact that the Army is so prevalent, so unified, so similar in, in, in so many ways, it's such a great fellowship that it's, it's been pretty easy for us to transition from place to place. Fantastic. That's great to hear. So, as you mentioned, you are currently appointed as Chief of the Staff for the Salvation Army internationally, and for those that aren't aware of the terminology that makes you second in command to the general who's the leader of the Salvation Army worldwide. What sort of responsibilities does your role hold? Well I mean my approach to the position is that I want to support the general you know and we have an outstanding general General Lyndon Buckingham and Commissioner Bromwin Buckingham and and, and really my role is to support their ministry kind of further their their ambitions for the Salvation Army, which of course they feel the Lord has laid on their heart. And so I try to do that by uh, giving good administrative leadership to the Army. And uh, that's really what I, what I try to do. And is there such a thing as a normal working day for you? Well, I mean, there is. There are often days that are quite uh, you know, normal and predictable. Um, and then there's other days where a lot of stuff comes out of left field that we would say in the States uh, that are quite challenging. Uh, but, uh, you know, I have a lot of help. I, I'm surrounded by a lot of really talented people, uh, both officers and employees that, that support my office and the work of IHQ. And so for the most part, I found it a real privilege and pleasure to serve in this, this, this role for me. It's a steep learning curve, as you can imagine, but uh, for the most part, I've enjoyed it. What are some of the biggest challenges that you see the Salvation Army facing at the moment? Well, I think that, uh, you know, I, I'm concerned, like a lot of people would be, about, uh, you know, some of the dwindling core congregations we see, particularly in the, the northern part of uh, the world, you know, in Europe and, and here in the UK and certainly in the States and Canada and other places, Australia. New Zealand, some of the places we've traditionally been uh, had strong, healthy congregations. I think that we've seen a decline. I don't think we can argue that reality. Uh, there's lots of bright spots, obviously, but uh, that that does concern me because that that doesn't bode well for the future of the movement. Um, so that certainly has to be a main point of emphasis for us: is to make sure that we're investing in our core, making sure our best officers are in the core, and empowering our local officers and so forth. And there's again lots of reasons for optimism there. Uh, certainly, I'm concerned about the fact that uh, we have a lack of sustainability in in, in many of our territories. Uh, very few of them are actually self-sufficient, and so. Certainly one of the priorities that I have is, is to make sure that we, we come up with some real good strategic thinking on, on how we can work with territories to become more self-reliant. And uh, that's going to require support, encouragement, uh, expertise. And I think we have the will to do that. Uh, we just have to put a plan in place, and, and, and even those processes now are in place. So 
uh, I, I, have, I have a lot of hope and a lot of optimism for the future, but uh, you know, there's definitely some big challenges that have always been in front of us, and uh, I think that uh, we'll, we'll move forward through these as we have in the past. And on the flip side of that question, what are some of the greatest blessings that you see from the Salvation Army internationally? Well, I read the other day that there's actually more more soldiers, junior soldiers and senior soldiers than ever before in the Army. So the Army is certainly growing overall. And uh, as I travel, you know, throughout the Salvation Army world, I've recently come back from Sri Lanka and uh, Uganda. And, uh, you know, you're just impressed by the caliber of our people, our officers, our soldiers. And, you know, some of them serving in very, very difficult places. And so, look, I think we have, you know, globally, you know, the resources. We have the right people. We have a great mission. We have the heritage. We just have to better synergize all these fantastic resources that we have. And look, I think the future is bright. Fantastic. That's great to hear and really uplifting to hear. You mentioned that you've done a lot of travel and seen a lot of the world. Is there anywhere you've ever been where you've had to sort of pinch yourself because you can't quite believe you're there? Yeah. Well, that's a fair question. I'm not sure I can answer that uh, without more thought. But um, certainly, um, while I said that Pasadena Tabernacle was in many ways the most formative appointment for me, and I could get into that if you like, but uh, I, I think that maybe my favorite appointment was, was, was Singapore. Uh, Singapore, Malaysia, Myanmar, uh, Thailand, because these are places that, you know, as a boy growing up in small towns in the northwest of the United States, I never even imagined I would get to, much less live. And uh, I just remember the incredible diversity of a Singapore to a Malaysia to a Myanmar to a Thailand and just the privilege it was to, to be there, to see Salvation Army children's homes, to see us working with seniors. You know, I remember going to a clinic in Myanmar where, you know, it was a two room medical clinic and I, I asked the nurse if she'd ever delivered a baby and she said, yeah, I've delivered 184 babies. You know, and that's in, a, in, a, in, in, in an area where there's no hospital, there's no town, but there's the Salvation Army, you know, carrying out such an incredible ministry in that place, providing the service, saving lives. So, you know, yeah, you know, I, I think I pinch myself almost every day when I'm kind of engaging with the Salvation Army internationally and here even in the UK because there's so much for us to celebrate. We thank God for for every faithful officer, soldier, you know, employee that makes it all happen. Amazing. And talking about the present now, I believe that you're an active member of the Bromley Temple Band playing E-flat bass. Do you enjoy being part of that fellowship still? Well, I do. You know, Shelley and I uh, came to uh, London in May of 2021, and, and people had recommended that we visit the Bromley Corps. It wasn't too far from where we lived in West Wickham. And our plan really was to visit the Corps, but also maybe a number of others, you know, just to familiarize ourselves with some of the Corps in London. But we went to Bromley on the first Sunday. We just felt kind of at home. You know, we were welcomed. It was convenient to get to. And uh, so uh, we do what we always try to do. We get involved at some level, even though we're not always there every Sunday. So Shelley joined the Songsters 
I enjoyed the band, and I've thoroughly enjoyed it. You know, it's a really good band, uh, great group of people, and uh, a rich fellowship. So um, it's been something that we've really enjoyed being a part of. Now, a little birdie tells me also that you're a very active supporter of the junior band at the core in Bromley. Why is it important for you to take out of your time, out of your no doubt busy schedule, to nurture that next generation of Salvationist musicians? Well, I don't think I should get too much credit for that. I mean, I think that, uh, again, you, you want to be helpful. And so I just happened to mention to Alan Williams, the YP band leader at some point, that if it would be helpful to him, you know, I'd be happy to come a little early on those Tuesday nights that, that I'm in town to play with a band. Because I know as a former YP band leader myself that it's really nice to have some adults playing with the, with, with the, with the kids. And so uh, I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed seeing the progress of the, the young people. And, uh, you know, I think it's important to make that investment because, uh, as you know, it takes a long time for a, for, a, for a kid or an adult to pick up an instrument and go from being a raw beginner to being you know, fairly accomplished where they can make a contribution in a band. And so along the way, there has to be uh, people who are kind of speaking into that process. You know, it's a five, six-year process at least and so uh, well, I, I don't consider it a sacrifice or any big deal it's something that I feel is fun and I enjoy doing it and it's been a privilege to do it that's wonderful and I think that would link nicely onto my next question what are your hopes for the future of the Salvation Army well look I, I think that we just need to continue to be uh, committed to the mission of the army you know it, it's what we need uh, to guide us along the way I would hope that we would continue to be a growing Salvation Army you know and I wouldn't want that just to be limited to one or two zones like it is now but every zone you know I would every want every zone to be growing and prospering I'd like to see us be more effective in reaching uh multiple ethnicities you know I think that sometimes in some of our core we don't reflect the communities that we serve we need to do better at that I think I think we need to uh, embrace our heritage I think it's a powerful uh, strength that we have and I think that sometimes we've been a little quick to abandon some of the traditional uh, activities and so forth that I think have made the Salvation Army what it has become uh, having said that, we always need to be open to trying new things, and I, I see lots of examples of that happening. So, like, I, I just want us to be kind of true to our calling, which is to be, a, you know, a worldwide force for good, for God, in the Salvation Army, and I, and I hope that, that that will be the case going forward. We certainly, again, have the people, the resources, uh, the mission to make that possible, and so I'm, I'm optimistic about the future. An exciting future ahead, indeed, then. So, as we are a music podcast, we should probably talk a little bit more specifically about music and Salvation Army music. Uh, as we know, the Salvation Army's had a rich heritage of music as part of its ministry for the last century and a half, at least. Why do you think that we as a church have had such an interest, and perhaps some might say emphasis, on the role of music in the church? Well, you know, it works. It works in terms of being a point of entry 
into the army. It works in terms of its uh, point of connecting people together. And it certainly works in our desire to worship the Lord and to outreach in, into the community. So I think it's effective. And so uh, I think that's why it's been such an important part of Salvation Army uh, work and ministry. And uh, I would be someone who would not be advocating for less emphasis on music making, but more emphasis. Of course, sometimes we can always misapply anything, and music sometimes can be the tail that wags the dog, I suppose, in some places. But uh, my experience is, is almost always been a positive, and uh, so I think we should look for those opportunities to exploit it as much as we can for the glory of God and for the extension of the work of the Salvation Army. And in your perspective, do you think that music in our church today has as much impact and relevance as it did 150 years ago? Well, I can't really talk about 150 years ago, but I think that uh, it, it is. It's, of course it is. It, it has tremendous relevance and impact. And uh, again, I, I wouldn't want to see any any drawback from what we've done musically uh, in the past or the present into the future. We need to be exploiting that more and more, uh, again, for the, the glory of God and for the extension of his kingdom. Uh, it's a great way to involve people. It's a way to get multi-generations, you know, sitting next to each other. I can remember when my kids joined the band, two of them cornet players, 14, 15, 16-year-olds, sitting next to a 90-year-old. I mean, when does that happen anywhere else? in the core. So I think that that's a beautiful thing. And then I think that uh, when it's done well, it's done right, uh, it, it has a, you know, a very positive uh, impact on the community. People respond to, to good music making. So um, I, I, I think that it's, it's as relevant now as ever before. And for you personally, could you pick out a highlight or a particular moment when you've been playing in a Salvation Army band that really sticks in your mind or perhaps is one of those moments that you'll never forget? Well, I think there's probably been lots of those kinds of moments. Um, I've had fun playing in the Salvation Army band and I've been moved to tears, you know, playing in Salvation Army bands and that would be true of my songster experience as well. And and that's the, uh, I think that's really the, the joy of, of music making in the Salvation Army. It can be a lot of fun. A lot of fun, but it's also an, an opportunity for us to be drawn closer to the Lord in our own spiritual experience. For me, one of the highlights, actually, of Salvation Army music making has been those opportunities when I've been leading congregational singing. You know, and you're leading a, you know, some great song, and you've got the band behind you, and you've got this great congregation singing, you know, some meaningful song by Charles Wesley or somebody else like that. You know, I think it doesn't get any better than that for me, I think, in, in the worship experience. So, yeah, I've been blessed uh, through my music-making experience, and I know the general feels the same way. I hope you get him on the program because he's going to have a lot to say as well about this this particular subject. But uh, it's an asset. It's an asset to the Army, and we need to fully develop it and uh, and make sure that music continues to be a strong, strong part of our, our worship experience. And perhaps you've started to unpack it a little bit there, so this may just be asking the same question in a way. But can you describe how your faith and your music interplay? Well, look, our faith is grounded on the Word of God, of course.
course and uh, our, our prayer life it's 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 grounded on felt fellowship you know with other people and all those things come to play uh, in, in a musical experience you know our, our music is based upon the words of scripture they're inspired by scripture uh, we have the opportunity to do this with other people you know which I think is fabulous and the Lord speaks to us you know through 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 music and uh, it's a beautiful thing and I've seen it happen before where the songsters are singing or the band is playing and, and somebody will come forward you know to kneel at the altar and you know the sermon gets set aside, you know, because worship is taking place. And that's the power that uh, music can have, particularly when it's done well, that it can speak to people. And that's been my experience. And, you know, I've been blessed because I've been inspired many times by the words and the music that I've been exposed to in, in, in army bands and songsters and other kinds of expressions. And, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't exchange them for anything. Thank you so much for giving us your viewpoint and sharing those experiences with us. And from the sublime, we now move into the ridiculous of the quirky quickfire question. So I've got a few quickfire questions. Some are a little bit normal and might uh, discover a little bit more of your inner bando. And some are just downright weird. So my first question is, who is your favourite Salvation Army composer? I've always enjoyed Dean Goffin and... and uh... I think that's because my favorite piece is my strength, my tower. And so that's, that would probably be my answer, Dean Goffin. And you've answered my next question, which was going to be, what is your favorite piece? Are you sticking with my strength, my tower? Yeah, I think so. Look, I was exposed to that by a band record. I think it was called Brass International. You, we all know the recording. It was from the Band and Songster Festival, I think, in the mid-60s. When I first heard that recording, uh, it kind of turned me on to that particular piece. And I've enjoyed it ever since. Fabulous, thank you. Now, if you were a contender on MasterChef, what would your signature dish be? <laughs> I'm going to have to pass on this question because I, I couldn't cook to uh, save my life. I really can. Well, if then by some miracle you won the competition, would you change your email footer to Chef of the Stuff and see if anyone noticed? <laughs> yeah. Look, the only thing I can do really in the kitchen is the barbecue. So maybe I would barbecue a steak or a chicken. I can do that, but no, I really can't cook worth a lick. For any firefighters listening, it's probably worth to say, don't barbecue in the kitchen itself. <laughs> well, that's right. Yeah, I usually cook outside on the grill. That's right. <laughs> Excellent stuff. Uh, have you got a favorite book of the Bible? The Gospels, I suppose, but Acts is maybe a, a particular favorite because it's such a beautiful story of the, of, of the early church. Uh, the book of Philippians is significant. So maybe I'll stay with Philippians because of Philippians 2, this idea of the servanthood of Jesus Christ. That's a powerful passage of scripture. If you could live one day in the life of any person in history, who would you choose to be for the day? Well, for an American, you know, our grandest president was Abraham Lincoln. I would like to be him for a day. But uh, maybe maybe I might choose uh, General Eisenhower, World War II, the day before D-Day, something like that. Uh, but again, that, there's lots of answers to that question. But I'll, I'll go with Abraham Lincoln. He's he's special to my heart and all Americans. Excellent. Is that just so you could wear the top hat? Or <laughs> <laughs> well, he was a great emancipator. 
you know, that, he was the great emancipator. He, he, he was instrumental in, in ending the scourge of slavery in our country. And so we all love Abraham Lincoln. Now, in your opinion, which tube station is hugely overrated? Oh, boy. Uh, you know, I do ride the tube quite a bit. Uh, the, the, the stop that I'm probably most familiar with is, is London Bridge. And uh, that one is uh, confusing to me. I'm still trying to figure that one out. If you could make one sport the official sport of the Salvation Army, what sport would it be? Well, this is going to make me unpopular. Um, <laughs> look, I think it would be, you know, football, American football. I love American football. Now, I have to say that I have gone now to a... a uh, a soccer game here, I, football, right? I went with Relton Holtstock. He's a member of the Bromley Temple Corps Band, and, and he took me to a game uh, where Crystal Palace played Manchester City. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know who these teams are, who these players are, uh, but that was the year that Manchester City won the treble. Is that right? Your knowledge of football is as good as mine. <laughs> oh, Okay. <laughs> So, look, I can say that I saw them play the year they won the treble. But I've become a little bit of a Crystal Palace fan. I, I, I bought the sweatshirt, I have the jacket, and uh, that makes Realton pretty happy. So, but I, I would choose American football. I, I love American football. Fantastic. What's the nicest hill you've ever climbed? The nicest hill? Well, um, in the States, we have mountains. And... Uh, so I think probably Mount Hood in Oregon. That was uh, it's a beautiful place in a, in a beautiful part of the country that we love. So I'd say Mount Hood, yeah. Where does the nickname Dusty come from? Yeah, actually, that just comes from my youth. Um, my mother said that I came in from playing outside, and uh, she just started calling me Dusty. And so that's kind of stuck with me. Uh, my real name is Edward, but most of my friends call me dusty and I'm happy for them to do so. Where is the dustiest place you've ever been? Well, probably uh, Death Valley in uh, California. You know, it's the hottest place on earth, I think, and there's there's lots of dust and sand and dirt there, that's for sure. And to me, Dusty Hill sounds like a great name for a cowboy. So my last question is, have you ever dressed up as a cowboy and walked into IHQ calling yourself Dusty the Soul Saving Bandit? <laughs> no, I haven't done that yet. Uh, maybe, maybe sometime. Fantastic. Well, that brings us on to our final segment, uh, which is the Band Manager 2024 band. Now, for those that haven't listened before, the Band Manager is a fantasy band that we're putting together, and each guest is uh, given the chance to nominate two players for the fantasy band. Once the seat is filled, that seat is filled and can't be refilled. As you are the first guest of our new fifth season in 2024, the band is completely empty and you have free reign pick of over any two seats in the band. So who would your two nominations be for the fully scored band manager 2024 band? Yeah, I'm sure that every guest struggles with this because there's been so many exceptional people and players that we've known. But I think that I'll go with two players who I thought had real influence beside their high caliber, and, and one would be a phoneme player by the name of Chris Mallett, who I think is probably known uh, to much of your audience. He, he came over to the Southern California Division as our divisional music director in the mid to late 80s, 
and uh, you know he's a fantastic uh, instrumentalist and composer and so forth. But he was really a person of influence that uh, uh, impacted the lives of so many uh, young people. He was the kind of person that would be happy to teach the beginners. You know, if he was at a band camp, he often would go to rehearsals uh, to, to corps that had small bands, 10 or 12, but to encourage them. You know, he didn't consider that a chore. He was happy to do it. And, uh, you know, we were just so sad that we lost him so young and unexpectedly. So certainly, Chris, as one of your two euphonium players, uh, and then uh, the other the other person I, I've selected is Terry Camsey, who again, I think is well known to everybody. Uh, Terry, of course, uh, was in the ISB and the New York staff band, but he came to our territory uh, later on in life and uh, actually became an auxiliary captain, he and his wife, Beryl, auxiliary captains. And again, he was a person of influence. He, he was not only a terrific musician and composer and so forth, but uh, he became kind of the church growth specialist for our territory. He was very innovative, very creative, and uh, again, a, a great source of encouragement for me and for many, many others. And of course, we were sad when he left us too, a little too early. So uh, I'll, I'll go with Terry and uh, Chris. Brilliant. Two fantastic choices there to start off our 2024 band manager. Thank you so much for giving up your time to speak to us. We'll hear you a little bit later in the podcast as you sit in the band mastermind hot seat. So we'll speak to you then. Thank you so much, Edward, for giving up your valuable time to speak with us and allowing us to get to know you better. And some terrific choices to start off the fully scored Band Manager 2024 band there. Now, 1978 was a particularly prolific year for perhaps the Salvation Army's most prolific composer. During that year, Ray Steadman Allen wrote not one, not two, but three major works. Daystar, the choral work We Believe, and also the monumental Victorian Snapshots on Ratcliffe Highway. Bandmaster Jonathan Evans joins us to delve deeper into the history, narrative and context of the music. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us once again on Fully Schooled for your third and hopefully not last appearance. Today you're going to be introducing us to the grand musical portrait of Victorian Britain. That is Ray Stedman Allen's masterpiece on Ratcliffe Highway. Before we talk about the music itself, can you tell us a little bit about the inspiration behind the work? Hi Matthew, great to be on the podcast again. Yes, of course. And I want to take you back to 1878. Salisbury in the United Kingdom and an appeal was made for some bodyguards to protect the Salvationists who were gathering to preach and worship in the open-air marketplace um, and at that time they were attracting some opposition they needed some protection. This call was answered by four members of the Fry family who pitched up with their brass instruments and offered security to the gathered group as they preached a somewhat unpopular message against the injustices of evil. And so Salvation Army bands were born. Fast forward 100 years to 1978, and Ray Stemmel was commissioned to write a major work to be simultaneously premiered by the International Staff Band and the Melbourne Staff Band at the International Congress. It was designed to mark a century of Salvation Army banding, and so there was a need for celebration and some nostalgia too. 
RSA was inspired by the front cover of the War Cry from Saturday, May the 15th, 1886, which featured an artistic impression of an Easter campaign held by Whitechapel soldiers marching through the Ratcliffe Highway. The sketch shows many buglers, timbrelists and soldiers marching forwards with their flag and banners aloft, surrounded by pubs, sailors, chimney smoke, ship masts in the distance and countless folks watching on from street level and hanging out of windows. Inspirational stuff for a composer of RSA's rare creativity, for sure. Now, what I'd not seen before was the article that accompanied the sketch, titled Great Doings at Whitechapel, authored by The Joyful Major. The feats detailed in this article are extraordinary. Thousands on the march, a suicide prevented, women lifted from prostitution, and 500 people following the 400-strong band back to the Whitechapel Core Hall for tea. So here are some quotes from the Warcry article by the Joyful Major. I saw on Saturday night, on the 24th of April, that the first corps of the Salvation Army was alive and meant to make everybody know it. And there was a real ring about the song and testimony. I'm presuming that must be Poplar Corps uh, that he's referencing there. Um, let's learn a little bit more then about what happened on this Easter weekend. Another quote says, at night we had souls crying for mercy. One poor woman wept much. And when I spoke to her, she said she had given up hope. Drink had ruined her. She'd lost her best friends. She'd lost her home and her character was gone. And in despair and determined to throw herself into the river. But hearing our music and singing, it seemed to say, come back to God. God can make you happy. And thank God she came to the barracks and to the feet of Jesus. So a suicide prevented there by the witness of these salvationists. 400 soldiers with two bands were the order of the march in the afternoon, and as we played and sang salvation through the back slums of the East End, I saw sights which forced tears into my eyes and produced feelings in my soul unutterable. Thousands of men and women lost to virtue, lost to shame, lost to decency, with the mark of the beast so plainly written upon their foreheads that no one could mistake whose they were. As we marched, the crowd gathered until when we were entering Ratcliffe Highway. We were headed by six rows of five in a row. So there is a little bit from the article. I think the image will be known to many, but perhaps not some of those quotes from the Joyful Major in 1886. So the area that's being referenced there in the article, um, that Dockland area in London, RSA visited that area and quickly conjured a vivid picture of the colourful, cosmopolitan and decadent East End of the 1880s. So what can you actually tell us about Ratcliffe Highway itself? Is this music based on a real location? The highway is still there today in East London, running into central London, and part of it was formerly known as Ratcliffe Highway. It's a road in the London borough of Tower Hamlets and it's less than two miles from the location of William Booth's first public meeting at Mile End back in 1865. Now, the, the road actually dates back all the way to Roman times, but in the 19th century it had a reputation for vice and crime and was the location of the infamous Ratcliffe Highway murders of the Marr family in 1811. By the late 19th century the highway had acquired a mythological status across London as a centre of all kinds of criminal activity, drunkenness and wild behaviour fuelled by the thousands of sailors from all over the world that poured into the area from the nearby docks of Limehouse. 
Charles Dickens, that great Victorian writer, said this about it. Ratcliffe Highway was one of the sights of the metropolis and almost unique in Europe as a scene of coarse riot and debauchery. This Dickensian vision of London, then, was a weary place of opium dens, wild animal emporiums, complete with rampaging escaped tigers from said emporiums, prostitution, squalid poverty and violent crime typified by the 1888 Whitechapel murders, better known by the name of their mystery perpetrator, Jack the Ripper. In RSA's words, it was a crowded, dissolute and degraded dockside slum with gin palaces and sailors lodging houses. Charles Booth, who was a doyen of Victorian philanthropic social reformers, unrelated to the founder of the Salvation Army, mapped London's poverty in 1889 and revealed 35% of the East End were living in poverty, with half of the residents of Ratcliffe Highway, which had by then been renamed St George's Street, living in the most extreme levels of poverty in London. These people were outcasts, the lowest, vicious and semi-criminal, to quote Charles Booth. Naturally, several Christian missions attempted to improve living conditions and ultimately to save souls, including the Salvation Army, often in the face of great resistance from groups like the Skeleton Army. The Skeletons had their own banners, insignia and songs and attacked Salvationists in 21 towns and cities across the UK. So I think to understand RSA's music fully and in depth, we need to appreciate the context of the Victorian East End and the birth of the Salvation Army and its banding movement too. Thank you so much for giving us that context there. Really fascinating to hear about that time of history, I guess, we and none of our listeners have probably seen. So thank you for taking us into that. What about the musical context? So how for RSA to respond to the image and to that article? Clearly something to represent the brave band, the singers, the timbrelists. And uh, to an extent, this had really been done. Um, if you look at Henry Goffin's quite novel Salvation Army Patrol, written in 1930, that depicts a Salvation Army band marching, as if from the distance, getting louder and louder before passing and diminuending as they leave. The band are playing bright crowns, the timbrels play. It's all very tonal and diatonic, but it's not a snapshot of that place as such. It only gives the perspective of the band, uh, not the listeners or, or the wider scene. This had been done in classical music. Elgar wrote his Cocaine Overture, um, and that was an example of trying to show the drunkenness and gluttony of late Victorian London, complete with a discordant Salvation Army band in the middle of that overture as well. But that was done in a very light-hearted way, with little focus on poverty or the work of the Christian missions. So instead, RSA took, I think, a far more daring approach in creating what I think is the Salvation Army's answer to the canon of London symphonies. So let's talk about some musical inspirations for RSA. If we're talking folk music, which is hugely important in this piece, if we're talking London symphonies, and if we're talking Ray Stedman Allen, we have to talk about Ralph Vaughan Williams. He was RSA's hero. He was the first composer he really studied in depth and is an influence in much of his writing. When I listen to RSA's music, as someone who, who loves Vaughan Williams' music, to me, RSA feels like an heir to Vaughan Williams, with music like Lord of the Sea and Prelude on Randolph, which is a Vaughan Williams tune, sounding like Vaughan Williams speaking through the brass band medium, perhaps even more than when Vaughan Williams wrote for brass bands himself. In considering Ratcliffe Highway, Vaughan Williams' London Symphony, written shortly before the First World War, is really significant and has a great thematic influence on Ratcliffe, as we will see. 
The other composer I want to mention is Charles Ives. We know from RSA's writings that as a teenager he was listening to the American composer Charles Ives, who I think is the most significant musical influence on this work. Ives also is a great model for an experimental Salvation Army composer like RSA. He's even been labelled a religious composer. He often built music towards epiphanies, like he uses the hymn tune Woodworth in his third symphony, and he does a fantasy on Nearer My God to Thee to close his fourth symphony as well. Now, Ives wrote highly programmatic music, so perfect for this. It was full of nostalgia, and his music evoked a boyhood spent in Connecticut under the tutelage of his father, George Ives, a conductor of the town brass band. And uh, Charles Ives even described his music as being brass bands with wings on. Ives presented his listeners with exciting, exasperating, complex sound environments with tense textures, using musical collages, creating music that was spatial and pictorial, mimicking real-world historical environments. You might say sound pictures or even snapshots. Ives could knit together many tunes and tonalities at once in a similar style of pandemonium to that of Igor Stravinsky. Now, Stravinsky would disguise his Russian folk tunes in ballets like Petrushka and the Rite of Spring to the point where they were unrecognisable and also deniable by him. Ives makes the quotations and allusions in his montages clear to the listener. The most characteristic programmatic and pastiche Ives would be the second movement of a piece called Three Places in New England. And that second movement is called Putnam's Camp, where he recounts a 4th of July picnic where a child listens to the bands, joins in with the games and dances. It's rhythmically awkward, deliberately mistuned, and he uses many tunes through the movement, including Yankee Doodle and the British Grenadiers, which is used on multiple occasions and is actually the only melody that appears in all three movements of this three places in New England. And so in some ways, the British Grenadiers is the constant of the whole. Thinking about London symphonies again, this is not unlike uh, Haydn in his London symphony. So he wrote 12 London symphonies, um, which were the final 12 symphonies he wrote. And he used folk material as the element of stability in those symphonies uh, in the 18th century. It's helping to anchor the larger structure. Ives did the same and so did RSA. And we'll come back to this idea as well as the British Grenadiers and Yankee Doodle as we discuss Ratcliffe Highway. And of course, the Ives connection goes the other way. Also, Charles Ives being inspired to write a piece of music around General William Booth entering into heaven. A great piece Absolutely. as well. Fantastic piece. He also wrote um, a string quartet. I think his first string quartet was subtitled The Salvation Army. So there's a real connection there between Ives and The Salvation Army. Amazing. Great to make all those links. And that gives us a real terrific background to the music. So I think it's probably about time that we delve into the piece itself. And I guess the opening would be the natural place to start. Absolutely. And what an opening. It's violent. It's brutal. It's a 12-tone chord to open, and this is dissonance on the level of Schoenberg. And uh, that's not unusual for RSA. He was very happy to be dissonant. If you think of Holy War, with its battle climax chord that uses all but two notes of the chromatic scale, he returned to that chord in Romans 8. The trombone concerto immortal theme begins with a 12-note row, and he's using here a 12-note chord with every note, every note, uh, white and black note from the piano in a uh, one octave scale, 
And so we are straight into the violence of Ratcliffe Highway with the foreshadowing of drunken behaviour to come in the trombone glisses. The trombones are often quite drunk in this piece. No comments there, please. The listener, especially a Salvation Army listener, is uncomfortable. I was speaking to someone about my core about this piece recently and they said, oh, I don't like that. It makes me feel uncomfortable. Good. We should be. That's the idea of the, the story. Uh, there's also then, after this opening, uh, the bar, two bars before A, there's a long pause uh, and then, it, then we go very, very quiet. And it's interesting, again, thinking about London symphonies, thinking about Haydn's London symphonies. This is, um, in essence, what we would call a noise-killing technique and the first time that appears in classical music is in Haydn's London Symphonies, where he starts really loud, sometimes just with one really loud chord, and then instantly goes quiet. And that's been passed down through the centuries since, and uh, RSA is using that technique here. So we go into letter A, and we have fog and chimes presented in the music, very much the, like the opening of Vaughan Williams' London Symphony. Now, Vaughan Williams begins his symphony with rising fogs, um, shown by rising and falling intervals before the Westminster chimes emerge in, uh, in a harp and in the strings. The fog returns all the way through that symphony, second movement I think is the next time, along with a lavender call. Who will buy my blooming lavender? Now Vaughan Williams does that in the viola, um, but it's obviously not played by strings in this piece. And whilst the fog and the chimes are similarly used by RSA, though far more chromatically here, he introduces the lavender theme in the opening bars, and this is going to be vital in holding together the whole structure of the piece in the same way that Ives uses the British Grenadiers in, in his composition. It's folk material holding together the whole, just like Haydn. Whilst the reference to Vaughan Williams' use of Westminster chimes is really quite obvious here, if you know Vaughan Williams' London Symphony and you hear it here, it's quite an obvious link. Perhaps less known would be the fact that the chimes also appear in one of Ives' string quartets, his second string quartet, so that influence of Ives is, is there too. From this opening snapshot, immediately as listeners, we know we're in London and we know it's the Victorian era as this street call from a flower girl was well known as a tune of the late 1800s. The violent opening music returns and a snare drum marches us onto Ratcliffe Highway with all of its sights and sounds. And at letter B, a couple of tunes are introduced. What can you tell us about these melodies that we are soon to hear? Well, first up, we've got Blow the Man Down, which is an 1860s sea shanty. And if you know SpongeBob SquarePants, Matthew, and I'm sure you do, the theme oh, yes. tune from that song is based on this shanty. Um, and you might hear, uh, way, hey, blow the man down. So that's going on here at letter B. The melody is presented in B-flat major, but there are flattened sevenths. The accompaniment is in C, and there is a tritone interval included in the harmony. The bass line is in another key again, as bitonality is already the norm in this piece. Lots of keys going on at the same time. Melody, accompaniment, and here bass line, all in different keys. And it's going to happen again and again. 
Here again is the influence of Charles Ives. Now, I read a great story about him as a child. He was made to sing songs in one key whilst being accompanied by his father in another key. It's not how I spent the time with my father as a kid, but that's what Charles Ives did. Back into RSA's music and the trombones skillfully represent the drunk sailors seeking cheap gin before we get, as you say, a second tune. And it's almost imperceptibly introduced. That tune is Goodbye Dolly Gray, which was written in 1897. And it's a song about going off to war. Goodbye Dolly, I must leave you, though it breaks my heart to go. Something tells me I'm needed at the front to fight the foe. Now, just incidentally, before we move past those two tunes, there are two folk tunes named Ratcliffe Highway. Now, neither appears in this music. Uh, The more popular of the two, uh, which has lyrics that are not suitable for this podcast, is all about a man who, while seeking prostitutes and gin houses on the highway, finds himself press-ganged into joining the Navy at the nearby docks. And so Dolly Gray is presenting these similar themes to represent something that might happen on the highway, and so a very appropriate choice. And we'll move swiftly on to Letter C before you start uh, singing any verses of that aforementioned <laughs> song. <laughs> Absolutely. So when we get into Letter C, we get a waltz. But it's a waltz derived from another song, London Bridge is Falling Down, which I won't sing because hopefully everyone will be familiar with it. This is a 17th century tune, but actually it became popular in the 19th century. So again, it's very appropriate for using for a piece about Ratcliffe Highway. It was originally a song about the dilapidation of London Bridge, but perhaps here is a metaphor for London itself, as our glistening trombones are continuing to cause mayhem. Also, RSA is messing around with the pulse at Letter C so that we, much like the drunkards, feel a tad unsteady on our feet. D and E, the music continues to be derived from London Bridges Falling Down, but RSA introduces rhythmic cells from an 1830s sea shanty, What Shall We Do With a Drunken Sailor? He formally recognises it in his score notes at bar 91, presented by a chromatic fall and echoes of the opening violent music. Bar before F, we get a large crescendo from the symbol, and our flower girl returns with Won't you buy my sweet blue lavender? Coupled again with the Westminster chimes for a second time, so this is an important structural point. At G, we hear an original hymn from RSA, and it's described above the score as Over all there is a divine heart. At this point, it's as if God is surveying the carnage of the highway we've heard so far and lamenting the scene with a divine yearning for transformation for those there. The falling thirds and fourths give this a real sighing, depressed feel um, with a pedal in the bass and very ambiguous harmony. We hear questions being asked, 
what should we do with a drunken sailor? What should we do with a drunken sailor? It keeps being asked by the band. And RSA describes this moment in the music as bitter, coarse, vivacious and mournful with the emotions of human wreckage. that he was born in the East End himself. He lived in London during the Blitz of early World War II. He served as a sailor. He knew what violence and suffering would sound like on the streets of London, and he's achieving that here. There's also a sense this is a groan from the people of the highway themselves. Perhaps they aren't really living the high life. They're suffering a bit of a hollow existence. The previously drunk trombones cry out with a motif we'll hear later in the piece. Bam, 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 bam. The lament is gradually passed all the way from soprano to B-flat bass, as if all of heaven is weeping, before we return to the sounds of the street once more, a few bars before letter I. Now, if I take you to the modern-day highway, um, half hidden down a small pedestrian path called Grace's Alley, a short way between Cable Street and the highway, is one of the East End's gems and the world's oldest surviving grand music hall, Wilton's Music Hall. Now, music halls and their songs were incredibly popular with the working class, and the Salvation Army makes an appearance in several songs. You've got a long way to go, and towards the things she'd never done before are two that come to mind. Champagne Charlie himself, or George Laybourne to use his proper name, performed at Wilton's, and one song almost certainly performed would have been Sweet Genevieve. It was a musical tune composed in the 1860s by George Cooper. Now, this has nothing to do with Sweet Caroline. It's a very different content. It's a man grieving for his dead wife, a man shrouded in dark thoughts and loss. Oh, Genevieve, I'd give the world to live again this lovely past. The cornets whisper a muted and highly chromatic presentation before more questions of what to do with drunk sailors take us into an entirely new sound world and snapshot at letter I. So now we arrive at letter I, but first let me tell you, Matthew, about the mm. Russian philosopher and author Dostoevsky. I don't know how much time you spent reading his writing. Oh, almost every day. <laughs> I bet. He visited London in 1862, and I have done some reading of his writing, and he noted the extraordinary easy communion that there was between rich and poor on the streets of London. And actually, I talked about Charles Booth earlier and his poverty map, uh, and if you look at where the Salvation Army barracks were on Whitechapel Road, just a, a short journey north up Cannon Street Road from the highway, we see right next to this abject poverty, great affluence. They're living side by side. And so at Letter I in Ratcliffe Highway, we now have a moment where alongside seeming abyss trots a horse and a carriage. RSA clearly took inspiration from the third movement of Vaughan Williams' London Symphony with its reference to handsome cabs and with imaginative use of jingling percussion.
Note the sleigh bells. And actually, just note in general the complexity and variety of the percussion writing if you compare it with Holy War 13, 14 years earlier, for example. As these sleigh bells vainly trot along, it's as if everyone on the highway is on their best behaviour, with the only interruption to the procession another lavender call in the back row cornets and horns. The chromatic stepwise motif of the carriage moves to the B-flat bass before gradually being taken over again by a subtle slowing down and the return of the passionate lament and groans of the highway now that deference has been made to the shallow betters of Victorian society who leave all of this devastation behind them. Forlorn questions continue of what to do with a drunken sailor and uh, the rhythmic cell that's derived from that sea shanty is used as well and it appears one bar before K in the trombones and timpani, taking us to letter K. And much like the River Thames, the music meanders into a new section. Where are we in the narrative at section K? Well, K is for carnage. I know that as a primary school teacher, I shouldn't say that, that's not right, but it really is. K is for carnage. Uh, carnage ensues here, and what shall we do with a drunken sailor is given its first full, robust and rampant run out. Uh, it's in D-flat, talking in concert pitch, at a brisk crotchet tempo of 152. We've added sevenths, there's flattened thirds to rock the tonality. Baritones and bass have the opportunity to shout, way, hey, up she rises for the first time too, you'll hear that. The band rises chromatically together and the solo cornets remind us of our dilapidated city with London bridges falling down as the drunks return to violence at letter L coarsely glissing around in the trombones against yet more 12-note chords of anguish. References to Drunken Sailor are then interrupted by a cornet fanfare in the key of E-flat. And this is as a group of soldiers arrive, whilst in D, the song It's the Soldiers of the Queen, My Lads, is played heavily in the bass end against the snare drum and first cornet line echoing the Drunken Sailor tune still. All of these layers on top of each other in different keys, different tunes. This all brings us to our first invented, if very plausible, event. A drunken fight occurs on the highway. Well, that leaves us looming on a cliffhanger. We'll be back with the next part of the analysis in our next episode, so make sure you tune in next month. Thank you so much, Jonathan. We look forward to hearing part two of your analysis in our next episode. But now, it's time to set sail to the most remote fictional space known to mankind. Land ahoy! Welcome to Arid Island. Today's guest is international staff bandsman Gareth Craig. Well, thank you so much, Gareth, for joining us on the Arid Island album. Are you keeping well? Very well, thank you. Excellent. So, have you ever been deserted on an Arid Island? Thankfully not. I've been in some pretty strange places around the world, but 
Thankfully not a uh, arid island so far. Being a military bandsman, have you had the training to survive, though, if you were? Um, I'm sure I've probably managed to scrabble together somehow some basic... Uh, find water, find shelter. That's your key points. Fantastic. Work from there. Nice. So could you tell us a little bit about what you do? I've alluded to you being a military bandsman, but uh, let's expand upon that. Yeah, um, as a member of the Coldstream Guards Band, my primary role is uh, bass trombone in the marching band to provide uh, musical support for all the state and ceremonial activities uh, in and around the country, with uh, the main ones being the changing of the guard ceremonies at uh, Buckingham Palace and St James's Palace and Windsor Castle. Uh, the King's Birthday Parade and um, Festival of Remembrance and the National uh, Service of uh, Remembrance at the Cenotaph in November. Amazing. And you've probably been seen on the TV more than most of our guests in the last yeah, 12 well, months. <laughs> we, we do all look very similar, so it's, yeah. it's generally quite hard to pick us out. Although, being on the front row, I maybe get spotted a few more times than some of my colleagues. Now, have you got any highlights or real key moments that you'll always remember from the Queen's funeral and the King's coronation, etc.? Absolutely. The, the, the funeral was an amazing event. Um, to see so many people, but it be so quiet and solemn, was quite a, a strange experience to, to march through. But you, it gave you a sense of great pride of, of being there. Um, same again in reverse for the coronation, having all the crowds and being so joyous an occasion um, was great. Although very hard work, and uh, we covered a lot of miles in the rehearsals and on the day, so uh, painful but great memories to have. Amazing. And talk about painful but great memories. You've recently joined the trombone section of the stuff, but <laughs> hopefully yeah. not quite as painful. No, it's a, it's a great honour to be part of. I've only been a member uh, officially since uh, March of 2022, so a post-Covid era trombone member. But I've helped out on occasions in uh, previous years for various events, so it didn't feel too much like coming into something totally new when I joined, which, always, which was good. Always good, and great to have you as part of the band. So that brings us on to the all-important question. If you were stuck on an arid and deserted island and could take one album with you, what would that album be and why? Yeah, uh, horrific to try and narrow this down to only one. Um, I'm a man of eclectic music tastes, I would suggest. Um, thanks mainly to upbringing, uh, friends at school, different influences. And so when I tried starting to narrow down which albums have been kind of key to my kind of musical upbringing. There's been artists like um, Eric Clapton on there, uh, through to the kind of heavier sides of rock, like uh, uh, Metallica. Um, then there's jazz influences, um, which I've enjoyed. More recently, the likes of a, a guy called Jacob Collier, who's amazing. But back to kind of early blues of uh, Howling Wolf, uh, people like that. Um, so there the really is a, a, a bizarre mix. Um, but once I started playing music for a living, I started uh, listening more to groups and ensembles that were in line with the kind of groups and ensembles I would play with. And that opened me up to a lot more um, symphonic wind repertoire and orchestral repertoire. Um, I always, I've always enjoyed both 
genres but never really listened to a lot um, but it's since that time that I've actually um, I would say collected uh, a lot more CDs, recordings, online things of orchestral music and particularly some of the kind of bigger well-known orchestras uh, the London Symphony Orchestra, I've got a lot of recordings of, the Berlin Phil, uh, Vienna Philharmonica, people like that. Um, but there was one CD that was actually lent to me by a colleague who said, uh, have a listen to this. Um, and it is just, for me as a bass trombone player, listening to the bass trombonist in, involved, who's a guy called Stefan Schultz, who's the Berlin Philharmonic uh, bass trombone player. And um, it just blew my mind in terms of what I want to sound like one day if I work hard enough. <laughs> uh, and as such, I think that's the album I'd want to have with me because it's the one that inspires me most to be better at my own instrument. And the album in particular is a recording of the works of Respighi. And it's the Fountains of Rome, which features uh, one movement in particular, the Pines of Rome, which is probably one of the more well known and it's just the most delightful music to sit and listen to mm. and uh, yeah as I say inspirational for me as an instrumentalist to want to be better absolutely fantastic choice there and uh, again thank you for bringing something different to the table and a unique album choice but equally as valid and great you're welcome thank, thank you, you for your time as well thanks Gareth for giving up your time to join us and such an excellent album selection New Year, New Sparsely Scored Challenge. For those that are new to the podcast, this is the segment where we play you a short excerpt of a piece of Salvation Army band music. If you know the piece, send us a direct message on social media to be in with a chance of being crowned champion. Here's the twist though. You'll only hear one instrumental part for a few bars. Each episode will add another part until we've found our winner. Here's your first listen to the new excerpt. Here it is again. Now it's time to welcome Commissioner Hill back to the podcast. The stakes are high, the tension is palpable, and the hot seat is roasting. That could only mean one thing. It's time for Band Mastermind. Welcome back, Edward Hill, to Fully Scored. Thank you so much for joining us once again and uh, being willing to sit in the Band Mastermind hot seat. So for those that don't know the format of Band Mastermind, you'll have one minute and 30 seconds to answer as many band trivia questions as you can. On a scale of one to ten, how nervous are you? I'm nervous because I don't think I will do well, but we'll see. I'll do my best. Excellent. Well, Commissioner Edward Hill, are you ready to play Band Mastermind? I am ready. Let's go. Then your time starts now. 
What was Leslie Condon's first published march? Duke Street. Correct. What city was Dean Goffin born in? I'm guessing Christchurch. Incorrect, I'm afraid. For a bonus point, though, in which year was he born? I'll guess 1915. I don't know. So close. Kaleidoscope is based on the music of which composer? I think that's... uh, Is that Robert Redhead? It's not, I'm afraid. Do you want to move on? Please. Can you name the virtuosic cornet solo that Leslie Condon wrote for Stephen Cobb? Uh, boy, is it Songs of Singing? Oh, it's on the tip of your tongue. I'll give you half a point for that. I heard him play it in 1980. Nice, excellent. Um, On the CD-ROM included with the original ISB manuscripts recording, who interviews members of the band in the studio? Well, I think that's Stephen Cobb, isn't it? Incorrect, I'm afraid. Who composed the first piece published in the Triumph series? Uh, I'm guessing... Norman Bearcroft. Incorrect, I'm afraid. Emil Soderstrom wrote a march celebrating which Chicago Corps in 2006? Chicago Corps was probably Norwich. Incorrect, I'm afraid. Who was bandmaster of the International Staff Band between 1947 and 1975? Uh, Probably Bernard Adams. Correct, and you just managed to get that one in the time there. So that gives you a score of... Two, isn't it? Two. No, actually, it was two and a half, I think. I'll give you half a point for one of them. You'll see why in a second. Thank you. So the city that Dean Goffin was born in was Wellington. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, And you're one year out. He was born in 1916. So close. Kaleidoscope was based on the music of Rimsky-Korsakoff, arranged by Brian Bowen. Now, here's the one you may kick yourself for. The virtuosic cornet solo that Leslie Condon wrote for Stephen Cobb was Sounds of Singing. Sounds of Singing, right, yeah. So, you could have half a point. And it was Trevor Davis that interviewed members of the ISB on the manuscripts recording. The first piece in the Triumph series was uh, composed by Frederick Hawkes. And the march, published in 2006, written by Emil Soderstrom, was called Chicago Belmont Corps. Yeah, well, certainly that march was published well after his death, I can tell you that, because he goes way back. Yeah, I suddenly realised that wasn't the best worded question as I was reading it. But uh, there we go, published in 2006, not written. Right. Well, Edward, thank you so much for joining us on Fully Scored and giving up time in your busy day to speak with us. It's really been a privilege and a pleasure to have you on. Well, thank you. It's been my pleasure, and I wish you both the very best. Thank you. Well, that's just about all we've got time for in this episode, I'm afraid. As always, if you've enjoyed spending this time with us, then make sure to follow us on social media to keep up to date with the latest and any bonus content. Before we do say Toodle Pip, a few thanks. Sincerest thanks to our terrific trio of guests, Edward, Jonathan and Gareth for giving up your time not only to record, but also all the preparation and thought that goes in beforehand too. Thank you to our producer, Simon Gash, for working tirelessly over the festive season and new year to put together this episode, and all 49 other ones beforehand. Thank you to Wadplay for hosting this episode and the associated playlist alongside it. And of course, last, but by no means least, thank you to you, our listener, Whether this is your first episode, or if you're a seasoned veteran sticking with us for the past five years, your listening presence 
is appreciated. See you next time. Goodbye and God bless.